the Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. This is the Unruffled Podcast, episode 205. This is a podcast about recovery through creativity. We live an intentional life. We thrive. I am Sandra Primo. And I'm Tammy Salas. And we are The Unruffled. Hello, Unruffled listeners. We are popping in at the top of the show to share with you several ways that you can help support the podcast. First, you can become a patron of the show by donating to our Patreon fundraising campaign. Please consider supporting our consistent effort in bringing you weekly content on creativity and recovery, all for less than the price of a latte. For just a dollar an episode, you will receive early access to each week's show as our way of saying thank you. If every listener did this, we would be over the moon. The link to our Patreon campaign is www.patreon.com backslash the unruffled podcast. And that's not it. You can share our show on social media or with your friends, and you can subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating on iTunes. All of this helps our little show immensely, and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Now, on to the show. Hey, Sandra. Good morning. How are you, my friend? I'm good. I am good. I am... I'm having a bit of a respite this week between things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last, yeah, the last week of May was just a woof. That was a doozy. <laughs> it always freaking is. It was a doozy. Yeah. yeah, my mom was here for almost a week, and my son graduated, and I had a birthday, and it was just. A, yeah. Of course, that seeped into June, but that yeah. it, it's just, it's been a doozy. So I'm having a bit of a respite this week, but then this weekend I shoot like a really big wedding. So, um, wow. I don't, I don't normally photograph big weddings. I usually yeah. defer those to somebody else who wants that kind of stress. <laughs> I, I'm, that's a lot of work, Sandra. It's an old friend's daughter who's getting married and. Uh, so I'll know some people there and I just, I think it's going to be, it's going to be big, but fun, you know, like there's no bridezillas or there's no monster mother-in-laws or anything like that. So, <laughs> oh, good. Um, yeah. And so it should be beautiful, but you know, it'll be like a 12 hour day and anyway. And then the editing and the getting the photos to them. Right. The, the editing like, oh, wow. is actually takes, Yeah usually takes twice as long to edit whatever, how many ever hours you put in yeah. you can d- double that usually for the editing. It's a lot of work, Sandra. So yeah. So that's oh. it. Well, I know we caught up, we do these unruffled um, calls on the weekend, every Sunday, uh, and, uh, a call that we do with the listeners. If you want in on that, join the secret Facebook group. I post an event every week for that. Um, and we'd shared about our graduation stories because our last episode that we talked about milestones, we talked about, you know, just this feelings that we had beforehand. And I do feel um, like something shifted after that happened. Like I do feel uh, a little bit of a release, a little bit of a, 
relief, you know, that, that the big event is over. It's always funny when there's like these big, huge milestone type of events. And then there's like the come down from it, right? Like after a wedding mm-hmm. or something, you know, there's always this come down after the wedding. So I'm kind of feeling mellow and quiet this week after all that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, my kid, I shared in the podcast, he's off on a road trip with a bunch of guys. Um, letting go is beginning, Sandra. Letting go is beginning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, just don't jump off of a roof into a pool. If you can just like not, that's my nightmare. Like if you can just not. So he, he texted me last night and he was like, this, the pool is the size of a hot tub, mom. <laughs> I was like, okay, so still don't do the thing I mentioned. <laughs> Just please don't do that. That had to have been like a scene from a eighties movie. huh? <laughs> totally. I well, I don't know from my life in 1982, when I would spend my summers at my best friend's house, her brother and all his friends did that. Oh, okay. that was in the eighties for sure. And <laughs> I don't know. Her mother was always at work. So yeah, that poor woman did not know what was happening at her house, but, mm. um, but I don't know. It feels, I feel, um, hopeful and optimistic this week. My, my muse class started yesterday with the live calls, which Sandra, I love teaching live. Like, I love it. I love talking to the women, you know, you with your classes. Yeah. There's just such magic oh, yeah. there when they share and connect and make other connections that you didn't even think about, you know, and I list, I just loved it. And a bunch of unruffleds are in there, which is a delight. And um, so that was kind of fun yesterday, but yeah, that's where I'm at. Um, anything you want to share before we jump in? And introduce um, I've, I will share quickly that, um, oh, I'm working on caftans this week. So, and Dude, you're dying silk. I saw that. Yeah, I've been tie-dyeing. So I, I'm, I, there will be three tie-dyed <sighs> silk caftans. So we'll see how those move to see if I make any more. But they're so pretty. I'm so excited. I can't wait to post them. And, and they should be posted by the time this airs. Um Anyway, that's all I'm working on. Just keep checking my uh, social media, my Instagram, if you want to purchase a summer caftan, um, Sandra underscore unruffled or the unruffled.com for the marketplace. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, they're beautiful. I just love what you're doing. And I like the dying. I was like, it took my breath away. I was like, oh, what is she doing now? Mm, so it looks mm-hmm. really cool. Really yeah, cool. it's fun. I've never, I've never died. I've never tie dyed before. You would think I, I mean, I've been to Grateful Dead shows. You would think I've tie-dyed in my life, but I haven't. I always had friends that were really good at it. <laughs> yeah. And so like really good at it. They've been doing it for, you know, a hundred years. And so yeah, I just never thought, I don't know. It's like other people tie-dye, not me, but mm-hmm. okay. I'm only doing one, you know, there's just, it's not that complicated. One color, yeah. no elaborate things. Well, happening. I, I like that with the one color. Yeah. Um, I was going to tell you real quick. I went into the ocean with some unruffleds on Sunday. I've been doing that the first Sunday of every month this year. And it's so cool who just shows up, Sandra, like I have some sober friends that show up and I have, you know, a couple of them are unruffled listeners and I have just a couple of girlfriends that show up that sobriety is not their thing, you know, um, and drinking isn't really their thing either. So it's kind of interesting how we can all just hang together. And, and we're talking a lot about recovery and, Um, it's really, I just, it's one of my favorite days of the month. Um, the water was so, so cold this time. Mm -hmm. It felt just like ice Mm -hmm. and, um, and it was windy as heck. So that was kind of a bummer. And so Sam got in all my bags and my purse and stuff. So last night I was 
went out to my deck and I'm right on the water here in Bodega Bay. And I like shook out my towel and shook out my sweatshirt. I have a sweatshirt that I bought from Caitlin um, with her artwork on it. Thank goodness. Yeah. I didn't lose that one, but I'm shaking out my stuff. And I went to shake out a t-shirt I brought to put on after I got out of the water. And I guess it had my pants rolled up in it too. And when I went to go shake it out, I lost my pants out into the bay. Oh, bummer. so <laughs> even sober, you can lose your pants. <laughs> so then I go get a mop and I'm like over it. Cause I have a little bit of a seawall here and I'm trying to take the mop and, you know, and try to pick it up. And I would get it like three times. I thought I almost had it and it would just slip right off the mop. And I was like, those pants are lost to the bay. They're just, oh. so I'll try to get out there at low tide and see if I can walk around or get it or whatever. But I was just laughing. I came in the house and I was like, I'm going to let that go too. This week is all about letting go, <laughs> just letting go of things. Uh, so, so, but I have pants on today. I am dressed. I am good. dressed. And we got to talk today to Anthony Eater, um, who is, I met him through, um, the luckiest club that Laura McCowan started and he's a meeting leader and I love him so much. His energy, his groundedness, his honesty, and he's just so great. So great. Yes. He was a lot. He's a lovely human. I'm so glad that I got to meet him. Yeah. Do you want to read his bio? And sure. Into it? So originally from the Midwest, Anthony is living life with purpose and joy in the beautiful mountains of Southern California. He works at a camp where he gets paid to play music, dress up like a crazy fool, chase <laughs> goats, but more importantly, impact the lives of people who came up to camp to experience peace and hope. He finds joy in knitting, music, laughing, road trips, and connecting with people. Anthony is always searching for new mu music, so send him all your suggestions. <laughs> I love that. Right. That's right. And you can find him on Instagram. He explains his Instagram handle at the end of the show. Um, it's at m-w-e-n-d-o dot soul so mwendo dot soul and yeah we can't wait for you to meet him enjoy the show enjoy anthony welcome to the show anthony thank you so much i'm happy to be here and it feels good to be in the presence of some sober warriors <laughs> oh welcome anthony you're starting with compliments sandra i know i'll take really? it we Hopefully that. it gets me a gift or something, but we'll see. Oh, yeah. You, you yeah see. Okay. <laughs> no expectations though, right? Cause we know those cause resentment. So no That's expectations. <laughs> Anthony, where are you um, talking to us from today? Yeah, I'm located in Southern California. Um, and the town I'm in is Oak Glen. It's like apple country. So in the fall time, it's so stunning. It's just beautiful fall trees. There's all types of like apple festivals and um, orchards and tastings. And so being from the Midwest, I appreciate the fall season. Oh, that's so fun. Oh, I love that. Fruit trees. Yes. Yay. Anthony lives not far from where I used to live in Loma Linda, California. And my parents used to always go to Oakland. Um, but around that time, I was of the age that I was too cool to hang out with my parents on the weekend um, <laughs> and go anywhere with them. So I didn't, I never went to Oakland. Um, my sister and brother did, but I did not. Well, and um, the thing too, is you have to pronounce it Oak Glen. 
because most people think I'm saying Oakland, like in Northern California. I'm like, right. no, it's Oakland. Oh, right. Yeah. Too yeah. separate. Mm-hmm. Well, we keep dreaming up. Um, Anthony and I get to lead meetings for the Luckiest Club. Um, not together, we don't do it, but we we do it at, on in the group of leaders. And um, Anthony, um, we talk about like a road trip, like the California uh, leaders should get together and mm-hmm. rendezvous. Oh, fun. I would really like that. Um, I just was through your neck of the woods uh, two weeks ago when I went to go see my mom in Arizona. And it was like, we drove 13 hours one day, Anthony. And then mm. on the way back, we stopped at Salvation Mountain um, out in Nyland. Um, I don't know if you've been out there. So no, I haven't. Actually, I don't think I've even heard of it. Oh, it's a public art installation that okay. was created by this man who's had this kind of religious fervor. And he, um, it's beautiful though. There's a little document. I'll send you a link for it. Love um, that. But me and Grady went to go see that. And that kind of took us off the beaten path a little bit. So we ended up driving like 15 and a half hours home mm. that Friday is how long it took us. So there was no time for pit stops um, beyond that. So next time. Next time. Next time. But, but he's out there in your neck of the woods at Joshua Tree this week. And I'll tell you what, sending four 18-year-old boys to the desert, they rented a house. I'm like, uh, who rented a house to them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can I see the contract? <laughs> I'm like, what is happening? Mm. They all bought cowboy hats, I guess, um, at like a 7-Eleven. And um, it's very cute that he keeps texting me, which is very sweet. Aw, very sweet. Um, okay, well, we're not here to talk about Grady and Joshua Tree. We're here to talk to you, Anthony. And I've never fully heard your story, Anthony. I've heard bits and pieces and parts of it. Um, so would you mind kind of leading us into like what brought you to the decision to quit drinking and then we'll kind of go from there? Yeah. What's interesting about sobriety is I feel like growing up, I really didn't hear about like, you know, issues with drinking, like no one in my family really struggled with, you know, any drinking problems by any means. And so just growing up, I just wasn't really sure what it meant to be, you know, sober or, or I didn't really have anyone in my life that I knew that was sober. So it wasn't really something that was kind of like part of my, you know, childhood. But once I got older, that's when I knew things were shifting. And it really begins when I was in my 20s. When I moved, I actually started living in California when I was 20. I worked at this camp that I work at now. And I worked there for three years. And once I moved back to the Midwest, that's when like drinking became a whole like shift. I was more trying to be part of the crew, be a part of the the crowd, because that was the thing to do. Like it was, you know, Sunday brunch, or it was Sunday happy hour, or it was, you know, bingo Tuesday at the gay bar, you know, it was one of the things you just did. And whether it was something you did with your friends, it was something I did with my family. You know, every Christmas, it was a tradition to have mimosas and any family gathering, we made sure we were, you know, stocked. And so it was just kind of the thing that we just did. And for me, I, I've always wanted this sense of belonging. I've always wanted this sense to feel like I was loved and wanted. And especially, um, you know, coming out um, in, when I was 20 years old, I was you know, just wanting to be loved and needed. And so mm-hmm. drinking felt like I could be a part of something. I could be feeling like I was special, like I was just in the right place. And so connector connected. you. Yes. I'm a huge connection person. I love to connect with people. And that was the one way 
that I felt like if I'm drinking, I'm connecting with you no matter what we were doing, whether we were at a festival, whether we were watching a show, if we were drinking, I felt like we were connecting because it felt like it opened doors to, in quotes, you know, conversations, really good conversations. Mm -hmm. But really the next day you're like, I don't remember what we talked about. Yeah. Or I would just mm -hmm. loop and repeat myself 9,000 mm -hmm. times. That's cute. Yeah. Cute. Oh yeah. Um, Anthony, how old are you now? Just for frame of reference. Yeah. So I'm now 33. 33. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this was yeah. 20, 23, you move home and this yeah. is what you're using. Okay. So like you came this, out when you were 20. I came out was 20. Okay. And so then mid twenties is when I felt like that was really like the chunk of like party central. And I never really took time to think about am I okay? Or is this like too much? Because again, like no one in my life that I knew was sober. No, none of my friends, they were all drinking. Like everyone I knew was, you know, drinking. And from what I could tell, they were okay. You know, they weren't, I didn't feel like, oh God, this person is really struggling or this is too much. And so my drinking then in my mid twenties was more about this sense of belonging and fitting in. But as I got older, I felt like my drinking was more like emotion-based, like it felt like when I was bored, I would drink. If I felt sad, I'm gonna drink. If I felt angry or jealousy, mm -hmm. no matter what, there was, you know, there was a, um, a bottle for every emotion. It was easy for me to neglect, to dismiss, to not process my emotions in a healthy way. And it was easy just to drink it away. And then there was also this high, like, ooh, like, I have this buzz, like I need to keep it going. Hmm. And was there, I, was there like no. an awareness around um, drinking and isolation, like at home by yourself versus, you know, in social settings? You know what, the, what was interesting about when I would drink with people, that's when I felt like I had to catch up sometimes, you know, I'm like, oh, they're, they're at a different level. I need to catch up with them or everyone else is still drinking. I probably should get another drink too. You know, it was just, mm -hmm. it was just kind of this sense of keeping up because again, like it was that sense of connection, that sense of belonging. I didn't want to feel like I was weak or I didn't want to feel like, oh, you're done drinking. Like what's up with that? So it was mm -hmm. just, I wanted to make sure that if I was drinking, then I was again with the people and I wanted to be with the people. I was like Ariel, <laughs> like I wanted to be mm -hmm. where the people are. And but when I got older, it, it, it kind of shifted. I know like I'm not older as, well, I'm not gonna say that, but um, it's, it's interesting to see how my mind, you know, shifted in, in the way I was drinking. And the, and, the, and the moment where I felt like something was wrong with my drinking, I was alone in a cabin. Um, I work at a camp and my directors own this cabin up in, um, up in Fraser Park where our other camp is at. And I was staying there to kind of run a week of camp there. And I was by myself in this cabin and I purchased like a case of wine. And then I bought I, like some beers and probably even a small thing of like whiskey or something. And I remember watching this show, like, you know, two bottles in and I was just like, the show was already making me emotional. So I was already like, feeling a little triggered by like just emotions. And I just sat there and I looked at like around and I thought I'm by myself and I'm trashed and I got like emotional and I thought do I have a problem like something's not right here mm -hmm. and I immediately pull up my phone and go to Google and Google like do I have a drinking problem mm -hmm. you know what is an alcoholic and looking at all these things and I thought okay this isn't helping mm -hmm. and so 
I took a chance to just ignore that. I was just like, I'm not gonna really focus on that. And so I mentioned it to a, like a couple of friends around that time. This was like April of 2019. And I told a couple of friends like, yeah, I think I have a drinking problem, but I'm not really sure. You know, I, I might just like need to take a break. And so I didn't take a break, you know, I kept on going. And then it was that fall of 2019 where I had a really bad night of drinking that affected like a really close friend of mine. Like it just, it got to a point where it made them uncomfortable the way I was acting. And, you know, we talked about the next day and I thought, you know, this, this can't be a thing for me. I can't not be this person who can't carry themselves when they drink. And I know how I get when I drink. It's almost like a mask. Like it's a different shift of a person. And I was saying, well, this isn't who I am. So I thought I'll take, I'll, I'll just take a break. And it was one of those things where I didn't put a timeline on that break and the break only lasted like two weeks because I was going to a concert and I was like, well, I'm not going to go to a concert sober. Like, what's the point? Like, that doesn't sound fun. Right. Like that's how we used to think. I was like, no, I was seeing Lizzo and I was like, I want to have fun. And so (laughs) I, I wanted to, you know, enjoy myself. And so it was like a two week break of not drinking, but then I felt like, okay, I took a two week break. I'm really aware. I'm fine. I'm fine. Like I got this. Like I know exactly <laughs> what I need to do. Like I'm gonna drink more water. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna stop. Drink smarter. Time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna do all the things that sound like they're right. Mm-hmm. And then I got to January of 2020, where I had a really again like a night where I just overextended myself in the drinking, and I again like affected some friendships and it affected. Um, and then it really affected me because I was seeing again, um, this isn't me. And I, I, I don't like to disappoint people because I'm an Enneagram type two and I love to help people and love on people and I want to be needed. And so when I upset someone or bother someone, it's like, whoa. But I thought like, okay, if I'm at a point where I'm affecting some relationships and it's also affecting like how I feel about myself this is okay so I had a pretty big wake-up call like last January of 2019 sorry 2020 and that's when I was like I'm going to be sober and I really didn't know what that meant when I said that when I was processing like this shift and and a transition of like living a sober life and so I rushed to tell like people within the last or sorry within the next three days after I made that decision of like, I'm going to stay sober. Like I texted all my family and here's the thing. I have like seven siblings, sorry, six siblings and like my parents. And then I've like step parents. So I was like texting each and every one of them individually, Hmm. which was exhausting. Then having each person like, you know, respond to you. Then I like told my coworkers and then I kind of made it a, a thing on, you know, Facebook. And I thought, Oh my gosh, like I'm making this, like real, I just, you know, told everyone not really realizing what I needed. I was just like, I can't drink. So and you're asking for support. You think, is that you're kind of like telling on yourself so that you wouldn't do accountability it? maybe. Mm-hmm. I think it was a little bit all of the above. I wasn't even mm-hmm. sure what I was needing. I think I just needed to let people know, like, this is what I'm doing and I probably will need support or I probably need someone to say, Hey, I'm sober too. 
you know, mm-hmm. like, and I knew of some sober friends. I knew some friends who I used to party with like hardcore that they shifted their life by becoming sober. So I was able to reach out to them oh, good. and say, Hey, like I need some help and I don't know what to do. And my friend Vince, who I just adore, was already a year sober at the time. And he was someone who I partied a lot with when I was, when we were both in our twenties. And I remember him saying like, Anthony, you are so loud for who you are. Like no one loves you more because you, you got drunk or were fun when you were drinking, like people love you for you. And that was really like, important to hear and another piece of advice that he shared with me too is just like the whole phrase we hear often is the one day at a time which I really didn't take into consideration or really embrace that like mantra but it was true because it was so easy and it's so often easy for me to think about the first this the first you know sober birthday that my you know my sister gets married you know this coming up year I'm thinking like oh my gosh how am I going to be but it's like you really do have to take it each day at a time and celebrate each day going to bed sober. And so in that first round of sobriety, I was just not drinking. I didn't go to any sober meetings. I didn't connect consistently actively with other sober people. I was just not drinking. And then the pandemic hit and I felt just so like alone. I felt so disconnected because everyone else that I was living with, the cool thing about working in a camp is that you live in community with them. So you work with them, but you're also all on the same like mountain. So you all have your own homes, but we're kind of in this bubble. And I was so like jealous. And so like, I don't know, it just, it felt like they were able to, especially with the pandemic, they were able to, heal and I don't know how to describe it but they were able to drink and forget about the pandemic where I was sitting there you know raw they were they were <laughs> yeah. bonding they were bonding yeah. and you were not exactly and I was just like right. well this sucks you know and but let me rewind a little bit because there is an important piece here that really helps launch more to the path is so my friend Vince when I spoke to him he's like you got to read this book called we are the luckiest and I was like okay and, you know, I looked it up, I purchased it right away off Amazon and I looked up the author, Laura McCowan and kind of like, you know, who is she? Never heard of her. I mean, I didn't know anyone who was sober, like publicly or, you know, on a platform like that. And she was on this book tour because she had launched this book and it was still okay to travel and do things. And she was coming to West Hollywood. Hmm. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go. That's not that far for me. So I took a Wednesday off, you know, drove there that you know, that Wednesday evening. And I was not finished with the book yet, but I was like on chapter six, I believe. And there's this section in the book where she talks about this need and the struggle with um, like social situations where I still be accepted. Will I still have um, the invitation to go out? Will I still feel like I belong? And that's what I was like feeling so hard in that moment was the fear of not being loved and not feeling like I was belonging. Will people still invite me? Will people think I'm still fun? Mm. And so at the end of her like reading, she did like a little bit of a Q&A. And I remember raising my hand and I was very nervous to ask and to share. And I said, how are you still adapting into your social situations? And 
she's like, you know, it, I'm not going to say it's easy, but she's like, it does get better because you start to feel um, more grounded and more confident in who you are. And you don't even think about what the others are doing. You're just focused on living in the moment and being you. And, and I said, yeah, I'm just really struggling. Like I'm, you know, reading this part of your book. And I just, I'm really nervous about social setting. And she's like, well, how's, you know, I'm asking like, how long are you in sobriety? I said three weeks. And she's like, and you're here? I was like, yeah, she's like, that's huge. Like, I can't believe like within three weeks you're here. And so I remember that book was kind of a guiding book for me just to like have something that I felt like, oh, this person kind of gets it. Yeah. And so moving along in the pandemic, I was again, just sober. I wasn't doing any of the work that kind of goes within someone's sobriety. And I remember my birthday is in April and it was like mid April, like, and I thought, okay, at the end of April, I'm going to hit a hundred days. I think that's good. I'm really satisfied with approaching a hundred days of sobriety. I'm, I was just jumping into therapy. I was like, this is great. I really feel like I can get back into drinking. And part of it was my birthday was coming up and I was mm-hmm. like, I don't want to be sober at my birthday. And hey. That is a, a, that's a feeling. I think a lot of people have, like, it's let's celebrate being born with getting wasted or buzzed or whatever. Yeah. Every birthday, it was Mm -hmm. always the need to plan it around drinking and making sure I had enough booze to keep me going through the weekend or through the day. And so there was no way I was going to be sober my birthday. So I stopped at a hundred days and I felt great. I felt you know, very proud of that. And I thought, okay, I, th- I, I got this. So that was at the end of April. And then I started going back into drinking and I saw some really like unhealthy behavior habits with my mental health and my physical health and my relationships with others and my relationship with myself. And the amount of money is unreal that I would spend. I would often prioritize purchasing alcohol over food because I knew that's what I needed more than anything. Because mm. if I was able to have a drink to go somewhere, I was okay. Mm. Yeah. And- well, right. And that's what they say, you know, sobriety ruins future drinking for you. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so that hundred days, you know, it's going, you can't unlearn, right. And you can't no. unknow what you've, what you've figured out in that hundred days. So it kind of does ruin it, doesn't it? And like, I also felt like I didn't, looking back now, I don't know what I really took away from the hundred days. I think I just took away a sense of pause and a sense of just being still. And that's when I kind of picked up my knitting mm-hmm. yes. because yes, it was really important for me to find something to do. And I've always wanted to knit. And so I, I, that's when I kind of picked it up. I wasn't like actively knitting, but when I went back to drinking, it kind of felt like I was okay, but then also it didn't feel okay. Cause I, like I said, I saw so many of the, the dark moments that were leading up to a shift and that shift really, the beginning of my new life, I would say really happened when I got sober, October of 2020, October 9th mm. to be exact. What led to that was again, another night where I overextended my drinking into a place where I was acting out and it, it scared 
some close friends of mine and it scared me to the point where the next day that probably was the hardest day I've had in a long time because the day you choose to be sober for me was just like you're just raw you're mm. processing this internal thing like this isn't working and something's off something's not right and I remember just feeling just exhausted mentally emotionally physically I mean I just just to kind of process what was going on. And I remember talking to my boss who has some loved ones who are in recovery. And she's like, well, do you wanna to go to rehab? Like we can get you there. Like this and that. I said, no, like I don't feel the need for that. I said, I've never, I don't see it like a need for me to be in rehab, but I said, I do need to seek help. And she encouraged me to um, get into group therapy. She's like, there's a lot of benefit with that. So I immediately called my health insurance and said, I need to, you know, get in, get in um, connected to a group therapy session um, with people who are struggling with, um, you know, addiction and drinking and such. And because I knew that when this thing happened, it was my third, like, screw up. I was like, I can't not do anything. Like I have to do something. Right. And that's when I knew I had to do more than just not drink. I had to like actively seek help and connect. So I immediately connected with a group therapy with early recovery people. And I remember when I um, did my first stint of sobriety, I followed as much as I could online, all these like sober accounts. I'm sure we all do at some point, like, oh, I'm not right. like, <clears throat> I sober, follow sober people or like Enneagram. It's like, I want to follow all the Enneagram people. And, <laughs> and I remember following, you know, Laura. And then I remember seeing that she had launched this online support group called the Luckiest Club. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I never really, and then the thing too, y'all, is that once I got, once I went back to drinking this summer, I unfollowed all the sober accounts but I didn't unfollow Laura for some reason. I just, I didn't mm. unfollow her. And so in October, when I was deciding like I have to do more, I need to like really do something. I remember seeing her often share about the luckiest club. And I thought, okay, I can afford that. Like what they were um, asking for a monthly membership. I thought I spend so much more on alcohol in a week. Like that is right. nothing. You know, that's like two Starbucks drinks. So like I could do that. Mm -hmm. it, was like nine, it was like nine bucks a month or yeah, something. It was like nine bucks a month. It was, yeah. you know, they were, it was at a, a really, and it's still affordable now for those who are even still considering joining. I 14. Yeah, it's great. Totally, <laughs> totally manageable. And I remember thinking like, I'm going to do this. This looks like the perfect thing I needed because again, I was feeling so lost, so distanced from community and connection with being sober and then having this pandemic kind of change the way we connect with people. And I was like, I need something. And so I remember like mid-October, like maybe a week after I got sober, um, I joined my first TLC meeting and that really shifted really everything. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I realized that I wasn't alone and people understood my story, even if they didn't know the whole story. I could say something and people are like, I get that. I understand like why that, why you may be feeling that or why this moment was hard for you. And it just opened all these doors to some of the best people I know. Like, honestly, the people who I talked to today, 90% of them are just sober people. There's just a small percentage and that's really my family. <laughs> like, yeah, right. it's like the people I'm connecting with and the people who are checking in with me, 
are my sober people. And it's like, it's incredible. And it's like, now I'm having honest, genuine conversations. But the thing is too, like, so I, I joined this, you know, TLC, but I realized it wasn't just about getting sober. For me, it was about loving myself. My Mm -hmm. sobriety is so much rooted in self-love because I wasn't seeing myself as worthy or valued or enough. Mm -hmm. And sobriety has taught me to really see myself and see the possibility of what I can do and what's out there for me. You know, I'm starting school in August and I'm like excited but nervous because I haven't been in school since I was in high school. Where are you going, Anthony? So I'm going to go to um, Crafton Hills, which is in, you know, Yucaipa, which is where my camp is at. And I'm going to start two years with community college there and then hopefully then transfer to a Cal State school. I want to study to be um, a guidance counselor. I want to work in a school. I want to work with kids and just equipping youth to find the right tools to, to take care of themselves with their mental health and to love on other people and just really help kids find the right path to leading lives full of purpose and, and love. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm beyond excited, but sobriety has offered me that. Sobriety has offered me the possibility to believe in myself that, yeah, you can go back to school and you can do that. And it's offered me a sense of grounding to really process my emotions in a healthy way. You know, I'm still like figuring things out. You know, I'm approaching, you know, eight months. But I feel like within the eight months of the sobriety that I have, I feel like I've, I've gained so much and I cannot wait to say I'm when I'm 10 years sober to see how much I've gained even in that. Like, I mean, yeah. it's like only months. I feel like I've learned so much and the amount of people I've connected with. And um, it's been such a journey and many things have really shaped kind of my heart and soul in this. And it really takes a lot of patience. I think within the patience, we have to love ourselves through it because it was so easy for me to carry all that shame and guilt. And the one thing too, like, you know, it's Pride Month. Yes, I love happy Pride. Fun. Yes, happy Pride. If you could see me, I'm waving. Happy Pride, waving. I know, I, I was gonna bring pride. that up. <laughs> and I remember, or anytime it's Pride or anytime it's my coming out, you know, birthday, I reflect on just that journey. And one thing that's really important that I find how coming out of sobriety and coming out as gay or queer is there's some similarities is like I remember when I got sober the second time like the one I'm in now I didn't want to rush to tell people I Mm -hmm. didn't tell my mom until two months after or my sisters or even my dad like I was really particular about I'm not going to tell people because one I said I was sober like earlier this year and I wanted to make sure I was grounded and what I was needing, what I was doing and how I was going to do it. But I remember being really intentional. And that's the same thing about coming out is like some people when they're coming out as queer, like some kids are doing it when they're 14. And then some people don't do it until they're in their sixties. The thing is coming out, whether it's your sobriety, your queerness, your divorce, your got fired from a job. It's about timing like you tell people when you're ready there's no rush to exclaim it to the world like I'm sober or I'm gay or I'm getting a divorce or I just lost my job or whatever it may be it's like you tell people when you want to tell them and you share what you want to share you don't need to share all the details you don't need to share all that and but I remember like 
feeling such guilt and shame when I was coming out, you know, sober, but I also was feeling that a lot too, when I was coming out as gay, like they had this connection, Hmm. but, but doing it, but coming out and speaking my truth allowed me the opportunity to feel so much more alive and connected with the right people. And that is such a gift. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to bring up. And it had just occurred to me um, because I'm sure that coming out queer is such a significant trip to honesty, right? Uh, Being honest with yourself fully and then, you know, and then being honest to, you know, your family and your friends. And, um, and when you mentioned, you know, when you were drinking, it felt like you were putting on masks. I can only imagine that that, you know, it's like steps backwards, right? Because it's, that's causing some friction there with your honesty. Oh, totally. There's such a freedom. The way I like to tell people is you, we get to exhale, we get to breathe. When we come out, there's a sense of yeah, like this is who I am and I've always been this and I'm able to really like live into that truth when it comes to coming out as queer or coming into living into your sobriety. There's this freedom of like, you know, I'm not covering up myself with the drinking. Like I get to be me 100% and I remember who I am 100%. I don't get lost in the night before like, what did I say or what did I do? Because that wasn't really me. You know, like Mm -hmm. there's those memes. It's like, that wasn't me talking. That was the vodka. Um, You know, like, (laughs) but in truth though, I'm like, I really, that's not who I am. Like when I, when I think about like my nights and hard nights of drinking, I'm like, and I hear the next day the stories, and I'm always like, oh my God, like that. And I'm just like, then I'm just like, this is dumb. Like that is, this is not really who I am. But yeah, when you come out, you get to be so true to yourself. You get to be true to your heart and you get to be true to the world. Because when we share these stories and we get to be honest, the best that we can do, the best way we can show up is to be truthful and to be honest because it allows someone else to do the same and to be seen and to be heard. And we all want to be seen. We all want to be heard. We all all want to have this sense of validation and belonging. And it's important for us to like share our stories and to be our honest selves. And I feel like sober people are one of our most honest people I know because they're sharing such raw, truthful stories. And I, and I also love that they celebrate so many wins. Like I've heard so many incredible stories of the simplicity of today. I went for a walk. And I was able to sit outside and be present with nature. I was able to do my daughter's birthday and I wasn't drinking at it. I was like, oh, it wasn't a shit show. It didn't turn into a shit show. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, yes, I love it. Well, I want to, let me, I want to kind of talk about, um, or, or just ask you about how this came to be. I know some of it from being in this, um, all the leaders for TLC, um, are on a, a thread together. So we kind of communicate all the time on business stuff and then on a different thread for fun stuff. But um, you were a member of TLC. So you just got sober in October and then there were subgroups, I believe. And you were in a subgroup. Were you the leader of that subgroup, Anthony? No, so there was um, subgroups were launching with the Luckiest Club um, kind of like in November of 2020. And I remember seeing that there was a Luckiest Queers one. I'm like, I want to partake in this. Okay, and so, so I them. did. And I remember 
the person that was running it. So I'm happy to like help you like um, manage some of the, like the leadership stuff. And so, yeah, I did. And um, was really thankful to like get to know a lot of the sober queers that were a part of the TLC community. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, things were kind of shifting and then they kind of took a break from um, subgroups. And then I remember Laura had reached out to me um, on social media at the time. And she's like, hey, I wanted to reach out to you about but um, I want to start a, you know, a queer focused meeting with the luckiest club, you know, would love to like pick your brain and, you know, see if you would be even be interested in, you know, hosting one. And I said, I would love to meet with you and connect with you. And so Laura and I met and we discussed like, you know, cause some of the important like language and important things mm-hmm. that are, would be helpful for, um, having a queer meeting and why it's kind of needed right now. And especially like, like there's a lot of high rates with substance abuse within the queer community. And, and because if you really connect with a lot of queer people, you'll, you'll hear a lot about how like, like for instance, Pride Month, a lot of Pride events and a lot of mm-hmm. Pride sponsors are liquor companies. Yeah. Right. And, well, liquor's going to uh, cash in on anything that. Oh, it can, totally. Right? So Absolutely. Of course, yeah. it's going to. Yeah. yeah. So, um, it was just important for both of us to have the conversation about like TLC needs to really like take the step into like creating more spaces for people who have a different voice than others, and yeah we talked about it and we wanted to launch two a week, which we actively have now. And it's, that also has changed my life is I love sober people and I love connecting with sober people. But when you get to connect, when I get to connect with sober queers, it changes my life. I'm sure like for other people, <laughs> it's like when yeah. you get to meet other sober moms or other yeah. sober I was going to say, artists, yeah, sober moms, sober creatives. Yeah. It's like you have another level another of- Another level of understanding. Mm-hmm, well, absolutely. This is what, so, so I have a couple of questions about this yeah. just for language. Cause like you mentioned, learning a whole new- um, set of ways to talk and use different words and queer. Can you tell why it was named that or why you'd landed on that or what that means to you? Yeah. So it, what's, what's really interesting is most people would associate queer and especially like an older generation would associate queer as um, like a negative term or a slur. And it, it was definitely, used. I mean, I was called queer like you know, growing up in middle school and, um, but somehow queer has shifted into a term that's being reclaimed into a more proud and way, the, the way to put it too is traditionally the queer community or the LGBTQIA was also known just as the gay community. Mm-hmm. But as we're changing, as we're evolving and people are, are finding ways to live in their truth, like we've been talking about here, is gay really only represents like kind of just the gay men community. It doesn't represent, you know, the trans or um, like lesbian women or non-binary. And so when you say the gay community, it feels like it's only shifting to one part. Mm-hmm. And so the term queer now is more of like an umbrella term because it's like this. I was going to say, it's like a bucket or it's like yeah. a welcoming sort of, it's, yeah, it feels more. It's this whole thing. Yeah. It just feels more welcoming. Yeah. And it's a little bit more inclusive too, because, and the thing too, is people 
need to realize the Q and LGBTQ isn't queer. It's questioning. Hmm, you interesting. Know? I did so, not know that. I didn't know so, that either, Anthony. Yeah. So people, it's actually questioning. It's not queer. But now queer is like, there's like seminaries or like there's like queer theology, like colleges hmm. are hosting like um, queer studies. Like queer has been into this broad, like, like I said, uh, a term that's helping people find language. And our language is always changing in regards to how we refer to people. Mm-hmm. And so just when we were talking about the name or how we would address it, um, queer was the one way to make it happen. It made the most sense okay. because it, like I said, it's, it's a term that's now being used to embrace this very large community and it's forever adding more and more ways for people to find who they are. Yeah. Well, you are such a connector, like you said, and and because you've worked in the field that you've worked in, like you were so good with people, Anthony, your Enneagram too, like whatever, all the makeup of you, you host really beautiful meetings and music is such a big part of your life. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Anthony made this playlist, (laughs) um, Sandra, for the luckiest club one year anniversary. Is it 14 or 15 hours long? It's I, like that. <laughs> oh, and that's it, amazing. It, it is like I had listened to it on my road trip and it's alphabetical and it just spoke to my Virgo nest. And I was like, look at what he did. Look at and I oh love that God. there's so many covers of songs. Like yeah. where you have this right, you know, like a one version of a song, and you got this really different version that's so fun. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about? I mean, I think like what is that your love language music like music is such my love language yeah what's really funny about playlists now is i'm sure you both will get a crack up at this is i remember making cassettes for people then i remember making cds (laughs) CDs for people now it's just playlists but music honestly is my therapy music is my meditation music is my like religion music is how i ground myself it how it's it connects me to my higher power it connects me to my family, my friends, music is such a language that we all understand. It connects so many people. And I love giving music to people. I love making playlists for people. And some people text me, they're like, hey, I have this event going on and this is I would love to, (laughs) you know, like I find such a joy because there's this quote, and I forget who says it, but it's like, when words fail, music speaks. You know, there's certain mm-hmm. songs when you just don't know how to process your emotions. The song leads you into this journey. And yeah. I, my, my parents both raised me on amazing music. My dad was more of the classic rock, like CCR and Beatles and Rolling Stones and Beach Boys. My mom was all about disco and Motown. And like, I really got a really good and then my sisters let me listen to boy bands all in the 90s. And so I have like <laughs> such a love for all genres of music. I really do. But it's really, really has shaped me. I, I can't thank music enough. It really got me through some of the hardest days and it helped me celebrate some of the most beautiful moments in my life. And I have a question and I, I always, I, I ask this question um, often and it seems like there's a 50-50 um, response to it. Did, was there any music when you s- were quitting drinking that you couldn't listen to because it was almost triggering? There's certain songs I listen to now that just have a different tone. Like, it's funny you bring this up because I'm, I have a lot of pictures in my apartment and 
I still have some pictures up of me like holding like a beverage and I like, I look at it like, Ugh, you know, I, I want to take it down, you know, or I don't like looking at old photos, but in regards to music, it's interesting. There's some songs that um, I just don't listen to anymore. Like I can think of songs that I would listen to when I was drinking or getting ready for something. Um, or there's songs where I hear and I hear it differently because I am sober or like I'm watching not I'm watching, I watch Grey's Anatomy and there's this character that's sober in it. And I look at them so differently now because I'm now actively sober and I see them, I see them. You know, I know they're yeah. not real, but like, it's just, it's one of those things where you look at art differently. You know, I know mm -hmm. we're here to talk about like creativeness and art, but like looking at that art of a show, I look at it differently, you know, and, and that kind of does, you know, apply to the music piece. But yeah. I try my best to, not always listen to a lot of like songs that um, encourage drinking. Or if I make a playlist for someone, I try to be, especially a sober person, try to be mindful of what songs I'm putting on there because mm -hmm. I want to be really intentional about what music is being expressed, you know, to yeah. the listening ear. The lyrics, yeah, mm -hmm. can get you. Because words matter. Country music for me, Ooh. it's nostalgic and it's my childhood and I love it and I, it, can make me the saddest and usually when i want to feel a good melancholy oh that's what i'll do <laughs> yeah. when i want right. to simmer in that for a little bit but it can yeah. be yeah yeah mm -hmm. i mean i had a there was some that some music that i could not listen to when i first quit drinking and it was mostly because i'm an enneagram seven first talking about enneagram numbers and mm -hmm. i would you know, one of the ways I would, one of the vehicles for me to get in touch with my emotions would be, you know, like a couple of bottles of wine and a couple of albums, you know, kind of set up and ready to go. Mm -hmm. And then I could like cry and journal and, you know, do, you know, be melancholy, but that was like the only way I could get there. It's like, I had to pack a bag and, you know, travel there. And, um, so it was, there was some music that was really hard for me at first. I was like, Ooh, that's interesting. I can't listen to that. <laughs> we used to on Friday nights, my uh, Grady's father and I used to always have like a cocktails and just like a snack dinner, you know, just little hors d'oeuvres. And we would always drink, you know, vodka martinis and um, listen to Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. So I, that's really the album I don't play anymore on my record player because yeah. <laughs> that takes me back to Friday nights and martinis and I just can't do that. Totally. Yeah, it's yeah. like when I cook, I love when I was, you know, you know, drinking, I often love to um yeah have a glass of wine and drink while I cook and I would have like this playlist that I labeled I think just like cocktail hour mm. and I remember changing it to the social hour because I was like why does it have to be cocktail hour I can just be social hour and it, I didn't listen to that playlist for a while um I love it now because it's got beautiful music it's like Frank Sinatra Ella Fitzgerald like very classic um like Marvin Gaye music on there too like just a bunch of really good like feel good cooking music but it took me a while to go back to it because cooking was always associated to me to, to have a drink while I cook. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. it's, just, it's, just, it's reframing for me. It's like changing my mindset. It's like, I'm finding new routines to have a different tone, different approach. Like I can still cook and not drink and have the best time ever. You know, it's just, it's just changing the way I'm doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It just speaks to like how music and sound mm -hmm. sounds and smells too can oh just are so yeah. sensual. They can just really trigger things somatically that, mm -hmm. you know, thoughts can't. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, somatically. Yeah. Speaking of, um, when I, when I did my training with Jolene Park for, um, gray area drinking, she talked about these ING activities, um, that help like, you know, create new neural pathways in your brain, knitting, uh, painting, cooking, uh, creative acts, right. Um, sewing. Um, so you mentioned knitting earlier. Can you tell me more about that? Um, and how that worked for you and how you, what you do with that? Yeah. So I first approached knitting December of 2018. Cause I, at that point in my life, I was trying to achieve like new goals and new skills. And one of the skills I wanted to pick up was a craft mm-hmm. and not like, like Michael's arts and crafts, but like a craft of something, you know, I really mm-hmm. wanted to have a skill. And I, my um, friend was a knitter and I thought, well, this is a great opportunity for me to then learn. And so I remember learning and just suffering <laughs> to, to focus and to mm-hmm. um, get it. And I couldn't sit still. I just, it was hard. It was, it was like the first time I tried to pick up chopsticks. I was like, I can't do this with my fingers. This is like way too much. Or it reminded me of like math. Like, I was just like, it felt like it was too much thinking. And so I stopped knitting. And then I remember a year later, I was like, I have to do this again. Like I want to knit, I want to make something and give it to people or make something for myself or allow me to do something while I'm doing like watching a show or talking with a friend. And so I, like I said, when I first got sober, I started to knit more and I was getting the hang of it. I felt like I was honestly like becoming a knitter. And then I kind of stopped. And then when I got sober last October, I promised myself in my sobriety, I would never stop knitting, that I would Mm. commit to knitting because you know, I get very anxious and I, you know, can't sit still sometimes. And it allows me, the thing that I love about knitting is that it's relaxing, but also productive because, mm-hmm. you know, you're looking at this and you're seeing it grow right in front of your eyes, like this beautiful <laughs> masterpiece. And, you know, and, and I'm not doing any special like patterns. Like I'm just doing a regular stitch, but it's so fun to see it come to life into a blanket or a scarf. But that was a promise because I knew I needed something that I could do to connect with myself. Drinking, mm-hmm. I assumed it was drinking, was, was connecting with myself, but it wasn't. Knitting allowed me to connect with myself more and it allowed me to um, kind of just be present with life. So I loved that it was relaxing and peaceful, but also productive and it was creative and it was able, I love giving gifts. So it, was, it allowed me to give like for Christmas I made all my sisters and my mom scarves so it was like that's amazing it was something to do and I a month ago I got diagnosed with ADHD and so I was like oh this makes sense (laughs) like why Mm. I like can't sit still or do things and so knitting kind of helps with that but also being sober has allowed me like a better approach to knitting too because when I first started knitting, I was drinking and I couldn't sit still and I, you know, was distracted by other things, but now I'm more focused, even though I'm still very much distracted, my focus feels different or my, my drive to do it or my motivation for knitting is so much more different. Yeah. It serves a lot of things. Yeah. It serves like focus, something to do with your hands. Um, something to occupy the time mm-hmm. to fill the void as we like to say totally i've read some articles that have shared um 
some of the benefits to, to knitting for people in recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's the, the Tempest had posted something about, um, I'll have to share it with you, Tammy, so you can yeah. look at it, but there's this beautiful article about knitting and it, it really does come to, yeah, filling in those spaces where you were drinking. So it's like the, finding those new routines that you would do. So it's like, when I come home, I'm not drinking, I'm going to knit and it, it allows me to reflect and pray and to just kind of be in the moment. Like I'll knit outside or I'll knit um, in the car during a road trip, you know, like. It keeps you off your damn phone too. Oh my, yes, it does. <laughs> and uh, like, I've met some really fun people who knit, you know, I've <laughs> met some sober people. I've been to um, knitting retreats and it's, it's really been great. And I cannot wait to expand my knitting. Cause I really do like, you know, being creative, you know, being at Enneagram two, when we go to a four, fours have a lot of creative energy. And so it, for self-care for twos, it's always important to find that creative outlet. We have a friend that's been on this show. Her name is Jen Geigley and she's, she, um, a friend actually, she didn't start it. Um, but they do a, she, they have a knitting sober circle. Oh, yeah. And before the pandemic, they were meeting, I think once a month and the, and the circle grew from like 10 to, you know, just huge, like a really big yeah. ass knitting sober circle. And so, um, I'm hoping that they get to go back to that. Yeah. And she's written a ton of books. Um, yeah. Jen Geigley is her name, Anthony, and she's sober as well. And yeah, she, yeah, that sober knitting circle sounds fantastic. I got together with four or five ladies here in Santa Rosa. Um, they're unruffled listeners and friends, and um, they started a knitting circle. And I tried it, and I realized I just liked visiting with them, that it wasn't, wasn't my jam. But they let me stay, and I tried. And I think maybe I'll try again if they get back together again, you know, give it another whirl. Um, but it was cool to sit around and just everybody and then helping one another. Like we had like the leader that, you know, really knew how to knit really well and could help everybody get started. So it was cool. It was really cool. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That article's in the temper. I'm just seeing it here. And Jolene Park is, is quoted there as well. Just talking about um, helps with breath regulation and it helps also with single focused attention. And it's like a working meditation. Like you said, it's kind of like this, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of positive benefits to it. Um, well, Anthony, you've done so many great things in this, you know, making your decision to get sober and decision to go back to school and taking on this role with TLC. I mean, you're very much a leader in that community. And, um, I don't know, it's just, it's got to feel really beautiful to you. You're creating this beautiful life. I'm so grateful. Like when people ask me how I'm doing, I often will always answer that I'm grateful first because, I am like, I can think of things that are stressing me out right now. I can think of things that I'm excited for. I can think of things that I'm anxious about, but at the end of the day, I have a lot of gratitude because I just, I see so much more, like I said, I see so much more possibility in myself. And I'm also seeing that in others too. Like, I'm like, I just love being on people and helping them find their sense of value because I'm seeing that in myself and I want people to feel the same, but sobriety has really taught me the joy of life and has taught me to love myself. And it's also taught me that I'm human. Like there's some days that it just feels like I'm not sure how this is going to work, but I find myself way through it. And Mm -hmm. I just give thanks. If anyone's listening to this and they haven't found like a community, like that is the one thing I recommend when you get sober is finding your people and connecting with them. 
so you can start to see yourself and believe in yourself. Finding a sober community has really changed my life, 100%. Mm. Yeah, finding finding people that share my common um, problem with alcohol has been key. It's been yeah. the answer. That's why I found Sandra. I mean, I reached out to her because, mm-hmm. um, and we were in community with Holly's Hip Sobriety, our home yeah. group for the podcast with her and Laura. Yeah, go ahead, Sandra, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, um, Anthony, if, if anybody wants to specifically join your queer focused, uh, meetings, TLC meetings, when do you lead those? So I lead every Sunday, a queer focused meeting, 10 PM Eastern time. And then AM I'm assuming. No <laughs> PM. 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 Yeah. Okay. I know. PM. It's late. 10 it. PM, yep. 10 PM Eastern time. Luckily in the Pacific it's 7 PM for me. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, and then um, I'm also now leading um, a Saturday evening meeting, 10.30 p.m. Eastern, like every other Saturday. So I've been able to really get my foot into that. And it's been really a joy to be a leader in these meetings because it's allowing me to hold space, which is what I want to do, you know, as my career, as I, you know, dive back into school, is this is allowing me to really connect with the human experience, the sober experience, the sober queer experience. It's really allowing me to really understand people through their wins and struggles and questions and all this stuff. So it's been such a gift to be able to partake in these meetings as a leader. Yeah, you lead such a beautiful meeting, Anthony, every Thank single you. time. So yeah, they're always lovely and um, you're very grounding and you're very, um, it's a safe place in your meetings. Um, real quick, just a side note for the queer focus meetings, you do not have to be queer to attend those meetings, correct? No, you, you don't, don't have to, to show a ID? proof, mm-hmm. an ID. No, or... no rainbow ID. <laughs> the, way, the way we um, kind of address that is, yeah, all are welcome to attend, but we give priority sharing to mm-hmm. the LGBTQI plus community first, and then we open up the floor. And it's been really great because safe spaces are really important, um, especially for people whose voices don't always feel like they can be safe when they're being shared or yeah. being shown. But there's such a great learning opportunity and connection and a way to learn and love the queer community. And so it's been really a gift to have other people come in and share their gratitude for this meeting to be um, available for other people just to kind of listen and and partake. But it is really a safe space, but I always tell the members that this is also a brave space. This is for you to show your truth and to be brave and that we welcome all vibes here. You know, I tell people, this isn't the Oscars. You don't need to have the best speech, just (laughs) be you. That's all we ask. And doing that will allow others to feel seen and to be heard. Mm, I love that. I tell you, I, um, I don't attend a lot of a, well, you know, of course I haven't attended any AA meetings in person in the last year and a half, but before the pandemic, I was going to, um, when I did go, I would go to the, um, we have a club here called the Galano club and those are queer focused meetings and they were my favorite. I, I think it, it was just because I saw, I saw I don't know. It was like more, there was more acceptance. There was a lot of people left their judgment at the door. Um, there was just something about the honesty there that just felt sweeter to me. Um, anyway, I loved going to 
to queer focus meetings when I, when I could. We call it queer magic. It was queer magic. <laughs> Thank you. It is literally it queer magic. magic. It is so, yes. if, yeah, if we can swear in here, yeah, it's, yeah, it's we can. Magic. Yeah. It's fucking queer magic. No, it, it is. And it's, it's incredible to see that. Like I, there are times that I just get so emotional listening to these people speak because they're just brave people. And I yes. just want to say you are doing it. Like, this is amazing. Like even people who are sharing their struggle, I'm saying, thank you for naming that. Thank you for allowing us to hear you and to see you. And you don't walk this alone. And it is such magic in those spaces. And even just in sober spaces, there's such magic that is present. Um, because like I said, we, we all get it in some way. We all understand what we're trying to do each day. And each day we're just trying to be sober and to be our best selves. Yeah. Oh. Anthony, I'm so glad you said yes. Thank you so much. Of course. Um, we are at this part of the show. We're going to wrap it up, but we like to ask um, our guests if they have any items that they could share with our listeners to put into their unruffled toolbox. And oh, um, to gosh, be unruffled is to be <laughs> calm and not agitated and kind of, you know, we're getting there. We're, um, we're, we used to be a little ruffled, right? Um, and this is to be unruffled. So it could be sober focused or creativity focused, like whatever your tools are that help you stay sober. I have these four books I want to share. There's this guy named Adrian Michael, and I share a lot with him in my meetings. And he his books um, changed my life in the past year. And they have actually helped me stay sober because I feel so seen in his words and in his truth. And he has these four books that I'm going to recommend. Um, and they're actually, they're a series. So there's Giver 1 and Giver 2. And then there's Love Language 1 and Love Language 2. And his books have been a huge blessing and a huge light when, when life felt dark and life felt empty. His words mm -hmm. gave me a sense of hope and validation. Um, so I'm going to recommend that to the readers. And then, and then the last thing is When in Doubt, dance it out like <laughs> find that music right. that moves you and lets you groove and lets you just be you just music has this powerful tool to heal us so I just I encourage all your folks to play that one song that you scream at the top of your lungs when driving your car or the songs that you sing in the shower like just find music that gets you whether it's those upbeat dance songs or those songs that have this beautiful warmth to it music can really do some incredible things I like that yeah and what about your third thing? Oh, it's my knitting. I, I think it's important to, um, well, the third thing actually, so yeah, it's the books, it's the knitting. And I think it's important to find something creative because I think we all have great ways to express ourselves and doing it in a creative way really showcases um, kind of the diversity and the eclectic people that we are. And so finding a, a creative outlet is important. So I knit as mm -hmm. much as I can, if not every day, every other day. And I do it um, at different times. Um, I guess I did say three things. I did say music. So yeah, yeah, music, yeah. these books, and then um, definitely knitting. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Anthony. Okay, so if people want to find you or connect with you, um, how can they do that? Yeah, so on Instagram, you probably, I'm not sure if you have like a way to spell this on your description, but it's Memwendo Soul. So it's at, like the at symbol for Instagram, then mm -hmm. it's M-W-E-N- do which means rhythm in swahili ah. and then then a period and then soul s-o-u-l 
the, re the reason behind that, I was at a friend's house who had a Swahili um, dictionary and I'm a percussionist. And I wanted to look at the, the book to see like what words they had that connected to the word rhythm. And so there were a bunch of them, but this word in particular, Moon Window, translated to movement and journey because mm -hmm. rhythm is a movement, but on our journey, we're on a rhythm. We're either in rhythm, we're offbeat, offbeat. It's all those things in between. So I thought I want that that word be part of my life. So I have actually tattooed on me, Moon Window. Oh, I like that. Mm -hmm. We didn't even talk about you being a percussionist. Okay, Anthony, we got more to talk about. We got to talk about next time. You just tell me round two. I'm ready. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Anthony. This was such a delight. And then uh, for TLC it. meetings, they can find you. They can sign up at theluckiestclub.com yeah, and get a schedule. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And find your meetings. That'd be great. All right. Have a beautiful, beautiful day. Thank you. Bye, Anthony. Bye, Sandra. Bye, Tammy. The Unruffled Podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas. Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by Caitlin Schumacher. Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designers Chris Aguirre and Amy Lanier. Thanks for listening.